0: You know, Red River Rivalry. That's uh, why we. it's why we're in college football, right? To to be part, be part of games like this. Um, two undefeated teams, two top twenty-five teams. Um, you know, the the spotlight of college football will be on us. That's right, Coach. It's here, the last edition of the Red River Rivalry. Wow, Big Twelve schools. So let's enjoy it. Let's celebrate it. It should be an awesome matchup between the Sooners and the Longhorns. Can't wait to take it in, but that's not the only game this weekend that we're going to preview. Welcome to Always College Football. I appreciate you being here. Today is Thursday, October 5th, and we hope that you're enjoying the show wherever it is that you consume it, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcast, the ESPN YouTube channel. We appreciate you being here. If you could just take a half second to like, that hits that thumbs up button right below. Subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the ESPN College Football Channel, and if you could also give us a rating on the podcast, whether that's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get it. If you could leave us a rating, leave us a review, that'd be amazing. We really, really appreciate it. We have a ton of matchups that we want to get to this weekend, a ton that we are very excited about. we are talking about the Red River rivalry, naturally, talk about Kentucky, Georgia, talk about LSU, Missouri, talk about Ohio State and Maryland talk about a bunch of games that are highly intriguing, that probably are a little under the radar. I mean, we're going to go as deep in the weeds that we're going to break down a little bit, not a lot, but we will break down a little bit. What Fresno State, are they the best G5 team in America? Is Marshall the best G5 team in America? We'll break down their matchups just a little bit this weekend as well. So a ton of games that we want to get to and a ton of games that we are very excited about, including Texas A&M and Alabama. So a handful, a handful that we are going to break down in detail. So let's kick it off. A little breakdown of the Red River rivalry, Texas and Oklahoma. They get together again in the Cotton Bowl. Let's get things kicked off in Dallas, Texas, where the Red River rivalry will be underway. Uh, It's not an easy one to say, but I'm going to work on it. And you'll notice that I slow down drastically when I'm actually trying to say it, because if I try to say it quickly, Red River rivalry, it'll all run together. Red River rivalry. And this might be the biggest addition of the Red River rivalry. It was formerly known as the Red River Shootout when this last game took place, but now it's probably the biggest addition to the matchup between Texas and Oklahoma since 2008. That was when number five, Texas beat the top-ranked Sooners 45-35 thanks to Colt McCoy's brilliance and Earl Thomas's two interceptions. Some questions that we need to address in this game. One, is Oklahoma's defense actually good I I think that's a big question for all of us. We all have acknowledged that they've taken strides. They're better. I, I think they're improved from a depth standpoint. I think they have better personnel. They clearly have a better understanding of what both Ted Roof, the defensive coordinator, and what Brent Venables want them to be. They went out, and I think they did a good job at the transfer portal. They added nine guys on the defensive side, and as a result, they're playing a lot better. I mean, the secondary, I think you have finally found some real difference makers in the back end. Billy Bowman, probably one of the better safeties in all of the country. I think he's been really elite at this point. The secondary in general, 10 interceptions on the year. Uh, Bowman by himself has a couple of them. And I think they've done a pretty dang good job up to this point. But one area where Oklahoma's really struggled is along the defensive line. And whether it's portal players or homegrown talent, They have 10 seniors that are in the rotation along the defensive front. It's probably the deepest unit on the roster. And they have a stable of fresh legs so that if the game, like last week against Texas, Kansas just ran out of gas in the second half. Texas is going to keep trying to pour it on you, naturally, right? They're going to keep trying to pour it on you. And having a deep group, I think, is really important. And Oklahoma has that. Here's the problem. Oklahoma has just eight sacks. Uh, that's 96th in college football, but they're getting a decent amount of pressure. They just can't seem to bring the quarterback home with the same level of consistency that you would like when looking at some of the top groups in the entire country. And then the other thing too, Oklahoma's team last year defensively, specifically on the defensive side, they did not really handle adversity well. They just didn't. Well, I thought last week was a good example of where they've grown in that area. If you look at the first half of the game against Iowa State. couple of coverage bust, long touchdown passes, a couple long plays given up. I think in like a three-play sequence, they had like 160 yards given up. And next thing you know, you're looking at the end of the first half, they're up by one, uh, 21-20. They'd given up like eight and a half yards of play. And then in the second half, it was a completely different animal. I mean, they were just totally different in the second half. They scored 29 unanswered. They gave up less than three yards of play. So I think this group can weather the storm better than they have in the past. So I actually do think that Oklahoma's defense is good. Can Texas continue to run the football? Uh, We know Jonathan Brooks the last couple weeks has really come into his own. He's third in the FBS in rushing nearly 600 yards and, of course, broke out the last couple weeks against both Baylor and against Kansas. And then Oklahoma's defense, like we've already talked about already, they've been pretty good uh, along the front. They've done a pretty decent job at the second level. Danny Stutzman. Their linebacker has been awesome this year. He's currently leading the Big 12 in tackles. So that, I think, matchup's going to be massive. Another thing, too, for Oklahoma. This is a career-defining moment for Dylan Gabriel. And, and I don't like to necessarily define careers by one performance, but let's be real. I mean, right now, if you look at just how Gabriel is perceived amongst Oklahoma faithful, and believe me, there's a high bar between all the Heisman Trophy winners in the last couple decades, Four at quarterback, to be exact, between Kyler and and Baker and Sam Bradford and Jason White, the four quarterbacks that have won the Heisman Trophy, they have amazing, amazing players. Uh, Jalen Hurts was a finalist. I mean, it's it goes without saying they they had Caleb Williams at one point. You know, what I mean, so they've been rich at the quarterback spot, and I think the bar for Gabriel has been insanely high, but this is an opportunity to, I think, etch himself in Oklahoma lore. Uh, This is a legacy game. And this is a big moment, I think, for him to kind of be mentioned alongside maybe some of the greats that have played the position. Now, you look statistically, the guy's done a really good job. He's been able to create big plays. He obviously has a really high completion percentage. Really, the deep ball is, I think, what could give Oklahoma a significant Opportunity in this game to pull the upset because if Gabriel throws the ball downfield against what I think is a relatively susceptible secondary for Texas, that might be big. And so far on passes that have traveled 40 yards plus this year, Gabriel is six of nine. That's the most completions in college football. So a big opportunity for him. Thinking about Texas's DBs, I do think they're gettable in the back end. I think Oklahoma's wide receivers are great. Andre Anthony has been a great surprise, just a deep ball threat from Michigan. He's been huge. Nick Anderson, a guy that isn't used as often as you'd like, but he averages 28 yards a catch. Jalil Farouk, and then of course, Drake Stoops. Those are the two other guys that you have to account for. So I think they have to play great Against these DBs, because that might be the weakness or question mark on Texas's team. But we all had no in order to create big plays, you got to be able to block them. So far, Oklahoma has been pretty good in protection, but they haven't been great running the football. Can they take some of the pressure off the passing game by being more efficient running the football? Just 126 yards per game the last three weeks. And then the other thing, too, we know that Texas is going to create big plays, they're going to take shots. Quinn has to hit his deep balls, Quinn Ewers, that is. Uh, that's been a little bit of an issue still to this point of his development. Now, people will remember how he played against Alabama. He was three for five on deep balls with a couple touchdowns. But against everybody else, he's just one of 13 this year. Uh, In his career, he has a 24% completion percentage on downfield throws. That's not great. And you already talked about the fact that Oklahoma's ball hawking secondary can make some plays. We know that A.D. Mitchell, Adonai Mitchell, and, and Xavier Worthy are amazing. The, the status of Jatavion Sanders is up in the air right now. We know Whittington's not really a deep threat, so he's kind of the underneath security blanket. This will be a tremendous opportunity for Quinn Ewers to get hot again against quality competition. This is going to be a heck of a game. It's going to be a heck of a game between both Texas and Oklahoma. It's great coaches on both staff. It's great coordinators on both staffs. I think it's going to come down to the wire. I like Texas to win it, but I think Texas wins it in what should be a very close battle. I'm thinking like 31-27 Longhorns in this incredible matchup. Alabama against Texas A&M. If this game were a night game, you could maybe double it up, hit Red River Rivalry in the morning, and then hit Alabama A&M at night. That'd be a heck of a Saturday, but unfortunately for those that are trying to play the doubleheader, you're not going to be able to make that happen. Alabama ch- travels to Tuscaloosa. This game will be at 3.30 Eastern time. And the big key in this game, like it is every week, I, I hate that, that this is where we go every week. Turnovers are massive in this game. Massive. If you think about what Alabama has been, and frankly, what Max Johnson's been over the course of his career, both at A&M and at uh, LSU prior to getting to College Station, Turnovers have been part of the story for both Jalen Milrow and Max Johnson, and if they come to the forefront in this game, there are going to be some issues. Milrow's had five career starts. He's thrown four interceptions in those five career starts, most notably two against a and or one against a and last year and then two against Texas this year. He's also had two fumbles. In those five starts, those were both against a and He didn't lose either one, but that's something to note as well. Johnson, however, 18 games started in his career. He has eight career interceptions, and he's had 13 career fumbles in 18 games that he started, including two last week that he lost. He's lost five. So ball security is of the utmost importance when it comes to evaluating this quarterback matchup. Milrow, I think, has done a really good job in the last couple of weeks. I know that he didn't play against South Florida, but since being thrust back into the lineup the last few weeks, he's really grown from a confidence standpoint. Right now, he's 14th in college football in passing efficiency. Now, he doesn't throw it a ton, but he has been efficient in the process. 78 pass attempts this year, 838, 6-3 touchdown to interception. And the one thing he hasn't done a great job of, and we'll talk about it here in a minute, understanding when the defense wins and not trying to do too much. Because if you look at the sacks, granted, we've all blamed the offensive line, and we'll talk about it, like I said, in a second. The sacks aren't always on the offensive line. There have been times when Milrow maybe has held onto it a little too long in an effort to make the play, which I totally admire and appreciate. But against a group like this, when you get behind the sticks by taking a sack on a first or second down, then they're going to pin their ears back on third down. It becomes very, very difficult. Milroe has to continue to be decisive. If it's not there on one, if it's not there on two, take off. He did it against Mississippi State and created some big plays with his legs as a result. Max Johnson, on the other side, also a very gifted runner. What I'd like to see Max Johnson do is not lower his shoulder, because they've already lost one quarterback for the year you lose another then your season could get real dicey in a hurry he needs to be real smart obviously with the decision making I think he's really accurate I think he throws a good deep ball I think they have an excellent wide receiver core to take uh, to take some of the load off him in catch and run situations and I really believe that, that Max Johnson is playing more confidently than he has in the past now maybe sometimes his he, he's a he's a bit of a game breaker. Like He can do some different things that can make life really tough on you. So he's going to have to understand, like Milrow, hey, the defense won this one. Let's not try to make a play because every drive that ends in a kick in a game like this, kick being punt, extra point, or field goal might be advantageous to the team that ultimately wins. The biggest question in this game, and we've talked already extensively about the quarterback matchup, but the biggest question in this game is, can Alabama block the Aggies front? Through five games this year, here's some of the numbers for the Aggies. It's absurd. They're number one in the country in sack rate. They sack the quarterback on about 16% of their dropbacks. They're number one in tackles for loss per game, which, by the way, the last two weeks have been absurd. They're number two in sacks per game. That's four sacks per game. And they're number 20 against the run. Of course, that's adjusted for sack yardage. And I obviously talked about the tackles for loss. So it's been a really disruptive group altogether. And they are so vastly improved from what they were a year ago. I mean, last year they had just 19 sacks. This year they have 20. And we're not even halfway there to the end of the year. So this group collectively, 2021, we all talked about the recruiting class that they were bringing in in 2022, in December of 21, 22 signing class, they are now coming into their own. And and Shamar Turner at the end of the line of scrimmage might be as good as anybody playing defensive end in college football right now. I mean, he has been outrageously disruptive. So you got to account for him. Alabama has given up a bunch of sacks, but not all those sacks have been on the offensive line. I've talked about that. Of the 20 they've given up to this point, I'd say half are probably on the offensive line. I don't have that for a specific stat. I'm not going to go through every single sack. I've watched them. I'd say probably about half are on the O-line. Half are probably on the quarterback and maybe in a little bit of indecisiveness from time to time, but they're going to have to play their best game. And finally, will Alabama be able to actively run the football? Because the best way to kind of eliminate sacks is staying out of obvious passing situations. <laughs> I know that, that's, that that doesn't take a you know a scientist to figure out that uh, methodology, right? But if they're consistent running the football on first and second down, and they can live in third and threes, then you might find yourself in a situation where you can run it on third down and avoid the obvious situation where Shamar Turner and company can pin their ears back and come after the quarterback. I think it's going to be a really competitive football game. I anticipate it being pretty low scoring as well. I think both defenses are excellent and I expect both coaching staffs for both offensive teams with Bobby Petrino in college station and Tommy Reese in Alabama. I expect them to really emphasize the point that if you give the other team, the short field in this one, we are going to lose. That's, that's kind of what I think will be said. Both defenses are excellent. Both defenses do a great job of attacking the opposing quarterback. I think Bama has an advantage in the secondary but I think AM has an advantage at the wide receiver position as of right now. I think it's going to be a close one. I think a walk-off field goal wins it, depending on which side you're on. I think it's a coin toss game. I'll take the favorite. I'll take Bama. I think it's going to be a heck of a matchup, though. Slight favorite, by the way, as that line moves a little bit more. Bama was a two-and-a-half-point favorite down to a one-and-a-half-point favorite. So, gosh, I mean, I really... It's an impossible game to predict. I'm going to be completely honest with that. Maryland at Ohio State. Now, We know that this game, according to Vegas, is a pretty heavy lean in favor of the Buckeyes. So instead of saying, well, here's the matchups we need to watch. Here's this what you need to do. Let's give you the recipe for Maryland to pull the upset. Okay? And I believe there's five keys here for Maryland to pull the upset. But before we get to the keys, we have to ask the question, is Maryland good or have they just not played anybody? I mean, that, that to me is a real question. And, and I, I can't accurately answer it. I, I just don't know because I, I think Maryland's pretty good. I watch the efficiency. I watch how they're playing, uh, you know, on uh, against an Indiana team that, for instance, had been pretty good against the pass and, and Maryland torches them. So I think Maryland's pretty good, but I also at the same time, I just don't know based on the quality of their schedule up to this point, just how real they are. The first key. For Maryland, they have to have the best quarterback in the matchup. Now, Talia Tungavailoa has been really good. Statistically speaking, he's coming off of probably his best game of the year. But there have been moments in his career where he's kind of had slumps throughout the game. I'm talking maybe a one-series or a two-series slump. And you can kind of tell sometimes with Talia, if the first play of the drive is successful, say they gain seven yards. Then he's going to have a good drive, but if they take a, you know, if if they, you know, hand it off to Hemby and he gains one, uh, and we're looking at second and nine, then you know it's it's probably not going to be a great drive. So he is a guy that has at times been a little bit inconsistent, even throughout the game. But like I said, against Indiana, he had maybe the best game of his career. I mean, the guy accounted for six touchdowns and was dominant against a team that Ohio State in week one didn't look great against. He right now, though, as far as stats, is running away right now as far as the passing yard leader in the Big Ten. Touchdowns, he's got 13, and he's tied right now for Hudson Card with the conference lead in completions, but Hudson Card's running an air raid-style system, so it's a little bit different. And then on the other side, Kyle McCord, very, very capable. I think he's a really capable quarterback. I think he showed guts the last time we saw him. He understands, hey, we got a great defense. Let's not put too much on their shoulders, by turn it over. So as long as he's efficient and makes great decisions, they should be in good shape in this game. But Talia has to dominate for Maryland to play with the Buckeyes. Maryland also, key number two, has to protect. The offensive line was a major concern in the preseason. But can they keep Talia upright? He's been sacked just three times in five games. And there's a lot, I think, to feel good about with how they've progressed, but they haven't seen anything like they're going to see this weekend with some of the pass rushers that Ohio State has at every position along the front. Maryland absolutely has to limit Marvin Harrison Jr. with their secondary. We saw Notre Dame do this adequately, and we know that Marvin Harrison, maybe he's not at 100% right now, has the ankle injury. but everything to a certain extent, kind of involves Marvin Harrison. Whether he gets the ball or not, you're always aware of where he's at on the field. The guy is an absolute force. And while he hasn't been at 100%, the guy still has put up pretty decent stats up to this point. And then the question mark for Maryland is that arguably their best secondary defender, Tarheeb Steele, still, he's got three picks this year, but he's not... We're not really 100% sure whether or not he's at 100%. So he's a little banged up. Will he be available? Will he not? If he's not, that's obviously going to be a huge issue. But that's key number three. Maryland has to limit what Marvin Harrison does from a productivity standpoint in this game. Key number four. Maryland has to win their one-on-ones with their wide receivers. Now, preseason expectations for Maryland were that they had actually upgraded at... Wide receiver, even though their group was maybe a little bit less touted, they felt like this group might be just slightly more explosive. And and up to this point, it's looking like that might be true. Deshaun Jones and Ty Felton coming off of 100-yard receiving games last week. Felton has been terrific. I mean, he's played a lot in his career, but was never really a featured guy because Dante Demas and Rock Jarrett were sitting in front of him. So they, I think, are going to be... Really important to take advantage of some one-on-ones on the perimeter. And then key number five, Maryland has to play in Columbus the way they've played in College Park. Now, you look at how they've played in College Park, there have been a couple scares. Obviously, last week, it was last year, it was close. Uh, a handful of years ago, I think it was 2017, it came down to a two-point conversion. And they ultimately didn't get it. But when the Buckeyes have been to Columbus, they've won the four meetings there by an average score of 63 to 18. So they need to play in Columbus the way they play in college park, and they might stand a chance. Here's a trend just to take into account. Each of the last eight meetings between Maryland and Ohio state have gone over the total. So I anticipate a high scoring game, but Buckeyes just have too much. I think they'll pull away. They're more battle tested. And I think after the evaluation after the Notre Dame game, they'll find different ways to attack this Maryland group. They have more depth and I think they have, uh, a much better contingent along the front defensively. So I think the Buckeyes run away with it. I would actually lay the points in this game. I think they will ultimately pull away there in the second half uh, once Maryland kind of runs out of gas and, and maybe Talia forces one that gives Ohio State the short field. One team is reeling. One team is on cloud nine. One team is LSU, one team is Missouri. Now, Missouri has a legit offense with real weapons. I mean, real weapons. Now, coming into the year, Brady Cook, entrenched in the quarterback battle, at one point was booed by his own fans. Well, he's playing amazing and has done a great job. Zero interceptions on the year, 11 touchdowns, throwing the ball downfield and giving his weapons plenty of opportunity to create in the open field. It's one of the best passing offenses in the country. They're currently 15th. In the country, throwing the football. Luther Burden, who was a five star at wide receiver when he got to Missouri, he's really starting to come into his own. Uh, you look at his production, uh, he had 375 yards last year. Well, this year he's already got 644. Uh, he's excellent in space because so much of what he does is after the catch. I mean, nearly two thirds of his receiving yards come after the catch. So he is massive. He's had four straight games with over 100 yards receiving. So can LSU secondary, which has been a huge issue, slow him down? If they do slow him down, you better account for Theo Weiss, who's coming off a 10-catch breakout performance against Vanderbilt. This is a legit offense that will give you a lot of issues. Missouri has a, a big advantage in the red zone, too. They almost always, when they get to the red zone, they score. Man, they are one of the best in college football. Meanwhile, LSU has really struggled in red zone defense. They're 119th nationally. So can they get off the field and As the field condenses, that I think is a big question. We know LSU has done a little bit better job running the football the last couple weeks, and Missouri comes into this game as the number one rush defense in the SEC. They're ranked eighth nationally, uh, two and a half yards a carry. So they're really good, really good up front defensively. The problem with Missouri's defense is really in the back end where we think that LSU can probably take advantage of some pass coverage that's just been okay. And we know it's tough to run the football, but LSU doesn't run the football in a real traditional sense. I mean, LSU, they're averaging almost 200 yards a game this year. It's third best in the SEC. But a lot of that naturally comes because of Jalen Daniels. Jalen Daniels is going to be able to create, run, and and buy time, and scramble. and He's going to take off, and he's going to hit some seams. And yeah, they'll have some design stuff for him. But it's really... Their passing game kind of sets up their rushing game because Jaden Daniels carries such a heavy load for them. Now, Logan Diggs has come on. Some of the other backs are getting better, but it's really Jaden Daniels that they're going to have to bottle up because most of their rushing efficiency is coming because their quarterback tucks it and runs because nothing's open downfield. So Missouri better keep their eyes in the backfield against what is an explosive running threat at quarterback. And then the last thing we need to talk about this was last week, An anomaly performance for LSU's defense or a sign of things to come. That was a historically bad performance. 706 yards of offense from Ole Miss. That's the most LSU has ever given up. Ever. Now, their offense is doing great. They're averaging 44 points a game, but their defense has been brutal. They're 108th in college football as far as points per game given up. So... This one might very well turn into a track meet. I like both offenses an awful lot. I like Missouri's defense better than I like LSU's defense. Shouldn't come as much of a surprise. But I do think that Malik Neighbors and Brian Thomas, from a wide receiver tandem, are every bit as good, if not better, than Luther Burden and Theo Weiss. I think Jaden Daniels is a better quarterback overall, even though Brady Cooks played beautifully. I think Jaden Daniels is a better quarterback overall than what Brady Cook has in store for himself as Missouri's quarterback. So all that being said, I like the over. LSU has gone over the total in nine consecutive games. It's the longest after streak in the FBS. But I think Missouri pulls the outright upset here. I actually think that their defense is going to cause enough disruption to be able to kind of unsettle the LSU offense, and Missouri ultimately gets it done on their home field. 11 o'clock start there too in Como. That should be a little interesting. to See whether or not LSU is ready to play coming off of the gut-wrenching performance that last week was. Washington State at UCLA. Last time these two faced each other uh, was in 2019 where Mike Leach was up. Mike Leach and Washington State, they were up 32 in the third quarter and lost 67-63. So if history is an indicator... Maybe this will be a great one. I have a feeling it will not be that high scoring. Just telling you based on how these two teams are playing. It's an interesting quarterback matchup, just storyline-wise. Cam Ward for Washington State, under-recruited player. Went to Incarnate Word. Had a great couple-year run. Ends up transferring up to the FBS and lands at Washington State alongside his quarterback coach and head coach and offensive coordinator who was Incarnate Word's head coach. He goes up. He's now a head coach at North Texas, but I digress. Cam Ward is a guy that's really come into his own over the last couple of years, but really the two star with the chip on his shoulder, trying to prove everybody wrong. Meanwhile, UCLA's Dante Moore has been, you know, all everything for years. I mean, five star prospect, you know, first power five offer before he turned 13. So, one guy has tried to kind of earn it, the other guy has been anointed from the beginning doesn't mean that, that Dante Moore won't ultimately become an excellent player. I think he will. He's already shown, and I'll tell you why in a minute. He's already shown what he can do, but I've been very impressed with how Ward has improved. Now with the new look offense, they're at Washington State. He's been ridiculous. 75% completion, 13-0 to zero touchdown interception. Now he's not, a, not really a runner, uh, but he has been susceptible to putting the ball in the deck. There have been three fumbles already this year. Uh, The deep ball accuracy was an area in which he really worked on this offseason and has been much, much better in that part of his game up to this point. Last year, completed 25%. This year, he's completing 53%. So he's gotten a whole lot better on the downfield passing attack. And all you have to do is watch the first series against Oregon State and see, all right, this dude can throw it down the field. We better make sure that we don't let Washington State's wide receivers Get behind us if you're a defensive coordinator trying to prepare for the Cougars. Dante Moore, on the other hand, he's shown some flashes, but he's a freshman. I mean, with with any freshman, there's going to be some really, really high moments and there's going to be some really, really low moments. Now, the stats won't necessarily blow you away. Most notably, he's he's not really a guy that's going to be able to create with his legs. Most freshmen that get thrust into the spotlight early are usually athletic enough to kind of just create and buy some time and run around and, and cause some headaches for opposing the coordinators. That's not who Dante Moore is. He plays very traditionally from the pocket, wants to be a pocket passer, but as a result, he's taken a bunch of sacks and has not done a great job getting the ball out of his hands. And against Power 5 competition, first time he ever played against a Power 5, he really struggled. Uh, just 15-35 to 35 against Utah, uh, through a pick, obviously a pick six that kind of broke the game open early. So he's going to have to be much better and much more poised this week to be successful. But UCLA has to take the pressure off of him. Now, UCLA is one of the best teams in the country when it comes to running the football. This is a tremendous running back duo with Carson Steele and TJ Harden. They've carried 77 times for 536 yards, nearly seven yards per carry. And both, I think, are, are big physical backs. I mean, now Utah held up pretty well against them. And if you look at Washington State's defensive front, they're pretty dang good. They have an excellent tandem of defensive ends in Ron Stone and Brennan Jackson, uh, and they're pretty stout up the middle too. But if UCLA wants to have success in this game, they absolutely 100% have to run the football with efficiency. If they don't, you put in too much pressure on your freshman quarterback, and if it becomes a quarterback duel, I like Washington State every day and twice on Saturday. UCLA also, to help their freshman quarterback, they got to stop with the drops, man. They have had countless drops this year. I mean, a handful. It feels like, and and their quarterback, man, he's he's already young. He's trying to figure it out. You can't be dropping the ball. So UCLA's wide receiver core has to do a better job securing the catch, focusing, concentrating, and not letting freebies get away. Now, a big edge that I do think UCLA does have is they have tremendous pass rush. Leatu Latu is one of the best pass rushers in the entire country. He's got four sacks, eighteen pressures coming into this game. He's unbelievable. I mean, just just watch. Layatu Latu for UCLA. You're going to say, goodness gracious, this dude's long. He's explosive. And for whatever reason, it doesn't matter how good your tackles are, he's going to get home. He's going to hit your quarterback. He's going to make your quarterback feel it. So you got to make sure you eliminate what he might be able to do. And by the way, that's that's not the only thing they have going for him. You got the Murphy twins, Grayson and Gabriel. They're pretty dang good on the inside. So this is a really good front. For UCLA and hey, the Cougs offensive line has done a good job this year in pass protection. They had a whale of a game against Oregon State, but this is a different animal that they're going to face this week with some of the twitch that UCLA has coming off the edge. And then the other thing that might decide this game, third downs, Washington State is the best team in the country right now when it comes to converting third downs. They've gone 31 of 52 on third down attempts, nearly 60%. And right now the Bruins defensively, not great on third down you would think with their pass rushers they'd be better than they are but it's really not an area where they've excelled they got to be better getting off the field on third down and the cougars have to continue to do a great job on third down like they've done up to this point being number one in college football nothing to shake your head at here's some trends unranked ucla right now they are unranked naturally and they're in a three and a half point favorite against the number 13 team in the country okay so that's like Alarm going off, right? Like an alarm goes off. Unranked team favored over a ranked team, and not just any ranked team—a ranked team with good win on their uh, on their docket and their number thirteen in college football. Well, just take this trend into account. Over the last ten seasons, unranked Pac-12 teams are nine and two straight up when favored by three or more points against a ranked Pac-12 team including winning each of the last four times this has happened. So I'm going to follow the trend here. I'm going to take UCLA to get the job done at home, but it should be an excellent matchup between these two outstanding programs. Kentucky Kentucky, <laughs> Kentucky <laughs> traveling to Georgia uh, should be an awesome matchup. I'm excited to be on the call alongside Sean McDonough and Molly McGrath. It's going to be awesome. Can't wait to watch this one. Uh, Historically, Georgia's dominated Kentucky. They've won 13 straight games. That's the longest longest streak against any SEC opponent since the conference was formed in 1933. So Kentucky, their win streak against, or Georgia's win streak against Kentucky is obviously of note. A couple things to note for Georgia. They've started really slow this year. And Kentucky has been a really fast starting team against SEC competition. But if Georgia starts slowing this one, I mean, we're talking about double-digit deficits in each of the first two conference games that they've played. Since the conference expanded to 12 teams and added divisions in 92, no team has won the SEC championship after overcoming double-digit deficits in each of their first two conference games. So not a good sign for Georgia, but there are enough positives that I've seen in the second half of games against both Auburn and against South Carolina to make me feel like Georgia is still going to be just fine as it relates to some of the teams that they'll face on their schedule this year. Kentucky has to get off to a fast start. Is not a team that's built to come from behind. I'll tell you why here in just a minute. The other thing I've learned up to this point is that Carson Beck can beat you. Carson Beck, I know people have kind of been maybe a little disappointed with how inconsistent they've been hitting the deep ball. And maybe they feel like the big play is missing right now. Well, I'll just tell you this lad mcconkey missed the first few games he might be your best deep threat like dominic lovett's excellent but he's a catch and run guy like get him the ball in space let him run let him work with it he's going to make most of you pay with yards after catch i think that they are definitely missing adenai mitchell a little bit now at texas like he was a big deep threat as well so and one more thing they haven't been efficient when running the football so if you're going to knock Carson Beck, well, they haven't hit the deep ball. Well, there are other circumstances that might lead to the deep ball being a work in progress at the moment. But I am very impressed with Carson Beck. Very. I think he's got a big arm. He slides in the pocket. He doesn't play like Stetson Bennett. He's very methodical. It's not going to be as big play reliant, but he's going to be more methodical. I think he's accurate. I think he understands protections. I think he knows what he's doing under center. And I've been thoroughly impressed with how he weathered the storm last week and what is a really hostile environment, really hostile environment. For that to be your fourth or fifth start, I think he handled it beautifully and did a great job in the second half. And people have said, well, you know, he only looks at Brock Bowers. Where would you look if you were playing quarterback For the Georgia Bulldogs, I would too, which is why I think Kentucky absolutely has to slow down Brock Bowers. Now, he got a little bit off to a slow start in the first three games, but the last couple games, man, he's been a different dude. The Biggest problem with him is the after the catch stuff. I mean, you get in the ball, and he's just so big, so fast, so athletic. He's got 305 yards after the catch this year. So the DBs for Kentucky, the safeties in particular, the corners, they have to do a great job tackling. They got to do a great job of draping him and doubling him, especially as he gets going, because you start to get, you know, 30 yard line or so, 25 yard line as George is going in. They're looking for number 19. And you got to make sure that you can eliminate what he is capable of doing. The other aspects of this game can Kentucky run the football? We know that Ray Davis went off last week against the number one defense at the time in the SEC. I think their tight end's doing an amazing job blocking, their offensive line's really coming along. I think last week was probably the best we've seen them look in probably the last two years. And then Georgia's coming off a performance last week against Auburn when they gave up 218 yards. But when you look a little bit deeper in Georgia's 218 yard defensive rushing performance, a lot of it was on Peyton Thorne 61 of it was on one run down the right sideline. Peyton Thorne is not a quarterback that you would think could burn you with his legs. So Georgia didn't respect it. They also had a couple guys out of the gap. They had a couple guys that weren't on the same page. Like end crashes inside. There's no one filling to the outside, and they got it cleaned up a little bit as the game went along. But I don't think that 218 yard performance is an indicator that Georgia's not good against the run. I think that was the anomaly performance, and I would expect them to play much better this week. So you know that Kirby Smart's telling these guys if Kentucky can't run the football, they can't win. Which leads us to our next point. Can Devin Leary hit some balls downfield? And he's been okay this year. I mean, just okay. To be honest with you, I thought we'd get more from Devin Leary. And when he transferred from NC State, I was like, man, this is a great addition at the quarterback spot for Kentucky. And I think he's been average. I think he played really poorly last week. Frankly, missed a lot of throws. I think the receivers haven't exactly held up their end of the bargain. There have been some key drops. But Barry and Brown, Dane Key, Tavion Robinson, those guys have to play lights out. Because I think the best way to attack this Georgia defense is over the top. you got to win some one-on-ones. you got to get behind them. Devin Leary did make some nice throws down the field against Vanderbilt, but he's got to do so with more consistency against the best defense he's played up to this point. A couple trends in this game. Kentucky's 7-1-1 against the spread against AP-ranked teams since the start of the 21 season. and Kentucky's covered four straight against the Georgia Bulldogs. Expect for them to go time-consuming. I think they're going to have them slow, methodical drives. They've done so each of the last two years, so I think that will be huge for the Wildcats in this one. I obviously am not going to pick it. I'm on the call. George is about a two touchdown favorite. So it should be an excellent game. Can't wait to be there. Should be an awesome environment at night between the two teams in the SEC East that I think are a cut above everybody else in that division right now. And then finally, Notre Dame travels to Louisville on ABC at night. Now, Louisville's 3 0 in ACC play for the first time since joining the league. All right. This is by far the best defense that Louisville has seen up to this point. This will be a huge challenge. For Jack Plummer and company. Will they be able to create enough offensively to put some pressure on Notre Dame? Now, I think Plummer, if you get him the version of Jack Plummer against Boston College, Notre Dame's in for a long night. I'm just telling you. That version has to be the, the consistent Jack Plummer that we see. I think he throws a really nice ball. I think he's got underrated mobility. And when he's clicking, he's legit. The problem is he hasn't been super consistent and sometimes they've had some stalled drives. They've had some inconsistencies and the pressure that he feels in the backfield does result in some intentional grounding penalties and I don't think he's done a great job as far as decision making is concerned. He's got six picks this year. That's tied for the most of any quarterback in the ACC. So Notre Dame's pass rush has to affect Jack Plummer because he will feel it, but if he gets hot, look out, could be a long day for the Irish in the secondary. Louisville's pass rush has to be important as well. Now, you think about what they were last year. I think they're pretty good this year. I don't think they're quite what they were last year. But this year, I think it's really, really important for them to put some pressure on Sam Hartman. They have to put some pressure on Sam Hartman. And if you can make him kind of speed up his process a little bit, he played Louisville last year at Wake Forest, and he was terrible in that game. So he's probably had this one circled. Just saying Sam Hartman, I know it's on a different team. I know he's wearing a different uniform. I would imagine he's had this one circled given his performance against Louisville last year. He had a million turnovers in that game. So Louisville's pass rush has to make him remind himself of last year's performance, and maybe that could slow down Notre Dame just a little bit. And I think the other thing, Louisville has to create some big plays. You look about at the Ohio State game for Notre Dame, the reason why Ohio State won the game is they manufactured like two big plays. One big run by Travion Henderson, the busted coverage to the left-hand side when they got Xavier Johnson running. Louisville has to manufacture some big plays. And Jawar Jordan, who is the running back for Louisville, he's a threat to take at the distance every single time. He's eclipsed 100 rushing yards in seven of his last 10 games and is one of the best in college football as far as yards per attempt is concerned. He's 7.73 in yards per attempt. They also have Jamari Thrash, who's averaging 20 yards per catch. Uh, He's scored five times. So that tandem of Jawar Jordan, the running back, number 25, and Jamari Thrash, number one, who's a big play threat at wide receiver, I think Notre Dame has to keep those guys in check. Louisville has to run the football in this game. They have to run the football with consistency to keep pace. NC State bottled them up. NC State bottled them up pretty well, I would say, and it was almost Louisville's first loss. I think it's going to be tough sledding against the Irish just – So, you know, and I know everyone's looking at this saying, well, the Irish, they're on the heels of a three-game road stand where it's just been a grind. Well, Notre Dame is 11-3 and against the spread on the road since the start of the 2020 season. I think Notre Dame wins this game going away. Louisville hasn't seen anything like they're going to see this weekend. This is a more physical team than anyone they've seen this weekend. I think NC State's a little bit close. We've already seen what Notre Dame did to NC State earlier in the year. I think Notre Dame wins this game going away, a couple touchdowns. I think they get it done comfortably, even though they are probably a little bit out of gas, knowing the emotional games that they've played in each of the last two weeks. So Louisville has to hope that Notre Dame has an off night. If they do, then Louisville has a chance. But if Notre Dame comes in ready to play, they should take care of business in the Lou. What do we want to see from USC as they host Arizona? Well, Lincoln Riley already addressed it. It's pretty easy, right? They need to finish tackles on the perimeter, and they need to keep the quarterback in the pocket. If you actually look at just how many tackles they've missed, starting week one or week zero against San Jose State to where they're at, it's like they've gotten worse from a tackling standpoint. You're not expected to see that. Usually week one's your worst tackling performance, and you get better and better and better over the course of time. That hasn't been the case for SC at all. Now, they've done, I think, a pretty good job of being able to apply pressure Defensively, I think they should actually kind of celebrate that they've improved so drastically in that area. But when you improve your pressure numbers, you also have to account for quarterbacks that will try to escape and and make things happen with their legs. You look at both edge rushers, both Solomon Bird and uh, Jamil Muhammad. These guys had really good days last week generating pressure. But Shador Sanders... Bust up the middle with a 25-yard run with 21 seconds left in the first half, and it's kind of been a little bit of an issue. So I do think that scrambling quarterbacks have given USC some fits over the years, so I want to see them corral whoever's playing quarterback, whether it's Noah Fafita or Jaden DeLora. I haven't seen exactly who it's going to be as of right now, but either one are both pretty scrappy with the ball in their hands. So just keep in mind, this is going to be, I think, a difficult game for USC. I I really believe it. I think this this Arizona team is very underrated. They're 4-0 against the spread, against AP Top 10 teams since the start of the 21 season. They've gone under in five consecutive games, which is tied for Utah, the longest streak active in the FBS. So I think Arizona is going to show up. They have some good playmakers at the second level defensively. This will be a tricky one. Can USC tackle a little better? And can they get the quarterbacks on the ground when those guys break contain? What do I want to see from Miami as they host Georgia Tech? I want to see maturity. It would be really easy for Miami to be looking ahead. Georgia Tech just lost to Bowling Green. Miami's coming off a bye week. I'm sure they've, they, they haven't they have circled the Georgia Tech game. This is They're probably sitting there thinking, man, we just show up. We'll take care of business. Let's get ready for the ranked matchup next week against the Tar Heels. That's going to be likely on ABC Prime. So I think they have to show me maturity. Just go out, perform at a high level, and just take care of business. They're the better team, and they should win the game. But I'm telling you, Georgia Tech is dangerous. But you're going to say, well, they just lost a bowling green. What are you talking about? Just if you watch Haynes King and that offense, they have some speed, they have some juice offensively, just they're, they're dangerous, I'm telling you. And if they get hot, like we saw at times last year, they can kind of go a little bit. So this thing could turn into a four-quarter fight if Miami doesn't respect their competition. Also looking forward to seeing Cam Kitchens back in the mix. Uh, he was carted off the field with the header neck injury during the week two game against Texas A&M. Missed a couple games, poised to return this weekend, so I'm excited to see Camp Kitchens. Obviously, an All-American contender there at safety, so I'm excited to see him back in the mix as well. I just want Miami to take care of business. If they take care of business, I'll feel good about it because I think next week has a chance to be a war against the UNC Tar Heels. And then finally, what do I want to see from Michigan when they go and take on Minnesota. Now, Michigan is continuing to kind of put it together offensively. It doesn't feel like they're a juggernaut, but they've scored 30 points in eight straight games dating back to last year. That's the longest streak in program history. Uh, and weirdly enough, this doesn't feel right, but Minnesota hasn't been very good on defense. Relatively speaking, right? Minnesota, at least the last handful of years, have been excellent. On defense have been sound. They've been physical. They've had good players in the front seven defensively. They've had good safety play. But for whatever reason, they just haven't been very good on defense this year, man. I know a bunch of guys transferred out. uh, You know, a couple are at Kansas, a couple, you know, one's at Texas, like a couple, like guys have transferred out. So I know that that's a little bit tricky. We're talking about a group that's allowing nearly 31 points a game and allowing 450 yards per game. It's 119th in the FBS. And it's amazing to me what Michigan's found in Roman Wilson. I mean, he's got eight touchdowns. I mean, that's tied for first in all of college football. And he's created a lot of big plays. Obviously, he had that amazing catch off the Nebraska defender's helmet that last week. It was just an amazing, amazing catch. So this is a guy that had eight career touchdowns coming into the season and or seven career touchdowns coming into the season. Now has eight already this year. So can he continue his hot hand? And then one other trend just to take into account, each of the last seven meetings between Minnesota and Michigan, your assumption would be, oh, they probably went under, right? No, they've actually gone over. The total. So I think this might be a little bit more high scoring than we would be used to. I expect Michigan to walk away with it. I just want to see them continue to grow. They're running the ball better. The offensive line looks better. I want to see Michigan continue to grow and pound a team that that really I don't think should keep this thing very close. Some other really interesting matchups that have already caught our attention leading up to this weekend that'll fly under the radar, but they shouldn't. I just want you to be aware of them. I want you to enjoy them because we celebrate all of college football here, especially on a Thursday edition of Always College Football. Fresno State travels to Wyoming. Fresno might be the best group of five team in America, uh, but this might be their most difficult test. Now, they're a slight favorite. but Wyoming has wins against Texas Tech, has a win against Texas Tech, and played Texas better than pretty much anybody up to this point. And another thing, just in case you're curious, Wyoming's 8-2 and two against the spread as a home underdog. It's the start of the 2019 season, and they're a slight five-point dog in this one. So Vegas thinks this one's going under the wire. Uh, I kind of do as well. It should be a great test for Fresno. It's been fun to watch that group operate up to this point. Colorado at Arizona State. Line opened at 5.5 and, and now is down to 4.5. And, and for those that are sharp, have made a ton of money, either fading or going with the bu- Buffalo this year. Uh, this would be a spot where I might fade them. Arizona State has been god-awful this year as far as turnovers are concerned. Uh, they rank last in the FBS with a minus 12 turnover margin. No other team in the FBS has a minus 10. So the fact that they're 12 just goes to show you how bad they've been. Now, can they apply a little pressure? I would imagine the Colorado probably reeling a bit after they came up a little bit short what was an incredible and emotional comeback last week. This one's a tricky one to pinpoint. I think Colorado's more talented by a fairly wide margin. But Vegas must know something here. I would be very careful if I wanted to have a little action on this game. Syracuse at North Carolina. Uh, Syracuse struggled last week. But I think they match up okay in this game. North Carolina's vastly improved on the defensive front. I think their front seven is, I don't want to say excellent yet, but they are 10 times better than they were a year ago. And Syracuse has kind of strung together poor performances. Over the last couple of years, they're like an eight, eight and a half point dog here on the road in Chapel Hill. Syracuse is 0-5 against the spread following a straight up loss as the start of last season. And they're 1-5 and against the spread in the last six games as a dog. So something to keep in mind here as Syracuse goes to Chapel Hill. But we already referenced earlier in the show, Miami traveling to uh, North Carolina next week. So maybe Tar Heels looking ahead a little bit. I doubt it. I mean, Syracuse, I think has everyone's respect. It's just, they haven't played well. And when they play poorly, it's almost like it carries over into the next week. Georgia tech and Miami already referenced one already, but Miami's one and eight against the spread following a bias at the start of 28, season. They filled the cover in four consecutive October games and Georgia tech's eight and two against the spread in the last 10 games of the dog. So if you want to take those with the grain, might take the points in that one. might be a little closer than the experts might think. Arkansas and Ole Miss, the Rebels and Raver, Razorbacks have played three games against one another where both teams have scored 50-plus points. That's the most between FBS teams in the poll era. So Arkansas and Ole Miss, anytime these two teams get together, expect a high-scoring affair. <laughs> I would expect much of the same this week as well, especially given what we saw from Ole Miss last week. And Arkansas, remember a couple weeks ago, the offense kind of found themselves... Maybe they'll be able to continue on and play better against what appears to be a very gettable Ole Miss defense. Uh, Oregon State and Cal. Interesting game here, I might add. Oregon State, great performance last week against Utah. And they've held eight of their last 12 opponents to 10 points or fewer, dating back to October 15th of last year. That's the most in the FBS in that time frame. But Cal has done a great job of running the football. We all know who Oregon State is, right? Oregon State's great against the run. and Oregon State runs the football on everybody. Well, Cal's improved drastically. They were the, one of the worst teams in America last year running the football. They averaged 97 yards a game running the ball last year. Now they're up to 212. That's the largest improvement in the country. And Cal is 6-1 and one against the spread as a home dog since the start of the 20 season. So I think this thing could be a little low scoring. I think Cal's going to keep it uncomfortable. For Oregon State and Cal's got a couple playmakers too. If Sam Jackson's starting a quarterback, they're a different team. So if he's going to go, this might be an interesting game to keep an eye on there when what I think an excellent Beaver team heads to Berkeley to take on a scrappy Cal team for sure. Vandy is at Florida. Florida's the lowest scoring team in the SEC, just 25 points per game and Vandy's allowed 33 points a game. Uh, That's the highest in the SEC. Now, Vandy's really failed to cover the spread in seven straight games since upsetting Florida as a 14-point dog last year. That's a long active streak in the country. But if you look at Vandy in Florida, for whatever reason, I've been on the call for a couple of them, a million years ago, this game is always very weird. I don't know why I was on the call when uh, Derek Mason and, um, and Todd Grantham almost got in a fight Uh, I was on the call the year before when it was a really close game down to the wire until a fumble by Ralph Webb led to Florida scoring. This game, for whatever reason, has been really strange. So I would not be at all surprised if Vandy plays this one a little bit closer than what the experts might think. And then finally, Marshall travels to NC State. Marshall quietly undefeated among the better teams in the G5. And NC State has now made a change at quarterback. Now, MJ Morris steps in for Brendan Armstrong. Armstrong had struggled this year, had thrown interceptions, had been inconsistent. So they're going to go with MJ Morris. They had hoped to redshirt him, but it just feels at the time... Like they needed to make a change. They need a little bit more out of the quarterback spot. But either way, they're not protecting very well. And Marshall's really, really good in the back end defensively. So if they're trying to get right with the passing attack, it doesn't feel like this is the spot to do it. Marshall, a slight six and a half point dog on the road at NC State. Be careful, Wolfpack. Be careful. Thanks for being with us. We always appreciate your contributions to the show. So if you could just contribute a little bit here, if you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a rating on whatever podcast platform you're on. Leave us a five-star review. That would be incredible. We so appreciate you guys for the support that you've given us. Our podcast numbers are through the roof compared to what they were a year ago. We continue to appreciate the support that you've shown us over the last year and change. For all of us here at Always College Football, enjoy the games this weekend. For Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day, and remember, it's Always College Football. Hey, guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcast.